Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. My name's Andrew. Um, my name's Michelle. Hello, Michelle. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. And uh, you were talking to Sam this week. Sam Chitterden, who is a writer, director, actor, and uh, indeed, she's going to be uh, writing and directing her own work in this year's Brighton Fringe. Yeah. So that's her play, So You Say. So You Say, which will be on at the uh, Sweet Jukebox. And Underworlds. Underworlds, which is a one-woman show, also at the Jukebox later on. And what else is going on in Brighton at the moment? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, opening on Friday the 21st uh, at the New Venture Theatre, there's a double bill of plays, um, Huey and The Real Inspector Hound. So that's an evening of two plays. And I know that some of the evenings have already been sold out because mm. they tend to sell out quite quickly for the New Venture. Mm-hmm, they do. And on the 22nd, Saturday the 22nd, just up from the jukebox itself on Waterloo Street is the Artista, and there's a uh, the Secret Comedy Club. It's not that secret, actually. Uh, no. They they advertise it quite heavily, uh, but it's <laughs> it's quite a small room as well. So that's another thing to sort of get in quite early on. Oh yeah. And there's a great bill um, of people on that the Artista uh, friends of ours that we've chatted to, uh, like Aidan Goatley uh, and Anthony Aiden, and all manner of people are on uh, that bill. So it looks like mm. to be a good ticket. Yeah. So, you're having a good week? I am. Uh, we're ramping up with rehearsals for Model Organisms. Yes, with Chelsea Newton-Mountney, who we were speaking to in a separate podcast. We recorded recorded a separate interview with Chelsea and Rich for Pop Heart Productions. Yeah. Because they also have um, all manner of things going on in the Brighton Fringe this year. They do, they do. Yeah, so it's been a busy, busy week. Yes. So, uh, shall we relax and listen to the podcast? Absolutely. Let's do that. This is episode five of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast, where today our guest is Sam Chidden. Hello. Hello. How are you doing today? Oh, good. So, quite a bit to get through, because you're an extraordinarily busy person. Well, I think. Thank you. I mean, I, mean, I, yeah, I say that because I end up getting a bit busy myself. I guess I've known you quite well from delivering workshops about, um, well, in my experience, performance workshops, acting workshops, mm-hmm. although that's not that's not the full remit of what sort of workshops you deliver. No, so we've known each other because I've done Monday evening drop-in classes at NVT, at yeah. Adventure Theatre, so uh, we've, we've both been involved in some of that. So some of the workshops I do are geared for actors around performance, but I also use theatre skills, theatre games, theatre techniques in, I suppose, what you broadly call personal development workshops. Yeah. So I work in... Um, leadership development I work with organizations um, helping leaders and managers to develop their skills I guess is that there's an element there in terms of people who are department leaders or managers aren't necessarily always that skilled at putting forward the ideas that they need their team to know about yeah so I, I work with um, so a lot of my work is within the NHS in the public sector so yeah. often people fall into management or leadership roles as as I did in yeah. my kind of career um, and, and never never have any training around that and um, and so what are people looking for when they come to you is it a, a problem they're trying to solve or a skill they're trying to develop it's not usually a problem and I would say a lot of a lot of personal development is you know needs to not be in the kind of remedial section sure. um, so but but it's fundamentally it's around confidence yeah and it's around you know the things that you hear actors saying all the time in rehearsals or, or trying to kind of find their way through a script it's you know thing I, I don't know 
I don't know how to say this. I don't know how to move. I don't know what's expected of me. You know, all of those questions we have as actors when yeah. we're trying to think about a character, they're the same problems that people have in the workplace, particularly if people are stepping into a role where others are looking up to them or looking to them for answers. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's exposing. It's like being on stage. So I kind of, you know, I talk about the the choices of how people want to be as leaders being like a like a performance and wanting to be more conscious about those choices so, so choosing not yeah. not to fake it you know so 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 in my book great acting great performing is not it's not pretending it's not a kind of a shell that we put on the outside but it's finding something that's true from within us yeah so i so i help leaders to kind of find what aspect of themselves they want to they want to bring to the fore yeah in different situations and you and you say that in your book that's what great acting is uh you you literally have a book uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh you have a book a poetry nice, poetry nice link. <laughs> yeah yeah poetry of leadership <laughs> yes. which um seems like a nice venn diagram of two aspects of leadership and, and poetry yeah, I think uh, coming back to you saying about my busyness, I think my whole life is a whole series of Venn diagrams. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, I was working in a leadership role and working in leadership development. And at the same time, I was passionate about theatre and creativity and poetry. And I suppose the way the way my kind of brain works, I like to make links between those different aspects. So I kind of found a, a what do you call those bits, the intersection? Yeah, the, the, the net, the, 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 the links, the yeah, links, yeah, that kind yeah. of overlap between the two, which is a space where, you know, I have something to bring and something to say that can help. I hope that can help others. I guess that's also a, an aspect of good leadership is that maybe the term leader itself is somewhat misleading because mm-hmm. it, it sounds like everything has to come from that one person. Absolutely. So although I, you know, in, in my kind of formal work, I, I do work with leaders. I also do yeah. personal development workshops with with people leaders of people too but um you know thinking about our, our how we lead our lives how we lead ourselves how we lead within our communities you know f- f- leadership doesn't have to be um a, a job title no. but but also i think that that whole thing about you know as you know when you work on a creative project it's it's a team effort yeah and the best creative projects work when when people pull together and everybody brings their strengths and their skills and respects each other and you know so they're all the the same rules as what makes a great organization tick or yeah and a great team how long have you been directing theater ah oh, about four years is that right because yeah I I, I I mean i might be wrong i i get the impression i was there to see <laughs> Yes. Your first. So the first, the first thing I directed was a short play called One Two Three at yes. the Adventure Theatre yeah. that that, uh, that you were in. Um, See, it all, it all links. There's there's a wonderful element of nepotism about this entire <laughs> podcast. Uh, Andrew was in it. Yeah, yeah, was I was. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, if we can get them writing, oh, that'd and, be cool. And Lisa, who was in the thing the other week, she was in it too. Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and we got to choke on digestive biscuits on on stage. Um, <laughs> I remember working with you, and, and it's, I, I don't know, maybe because I, I direct, it can be challenging in theory for a director to be directed and uh-huh. not and not voice their own opinion. Um, but I do remember thinking, which I don't often, that you were a director, which means, I need to qualify that, in terms of not that you were directing me in your in your first production but that that was in your dna that you okay. were naturally a director in a way that sometimes there are certain people who might direct quite regularly and quite re- direct quite well 
but it's not in their bones. But it, for me, being directed by you, I don't know how confident or terrified you felt. <laughs> it felt like this was your your home. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, very terrified. Yeah. And I, I still am when yeah. I'm directing and performing and writing, to be honest, when that, when that sure. first goes out there. But um, I suppose... I mean, directors work in different ways. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a not a very directive director. Um, oh, okay, I'm, I'm gonna unpick that. What does that mean? <laughs> For me, directing is very much like coaching, which is something that I also do, and is very much like how I work when I'm um, doing some of the personal development work that I do. Yeah, uh, it's all about trying to draw out what people have within them. So whether that's leading a team or finding the characters or developing somebody's confidence. Um, yeah. So it's not about telling. So I suppose, so, so that links to the, I'm not a very directive director. Yeah. I, I don't particularly like telling people what to do. Yeah. That's not kind of my, I don't start with that. I mean, sometimes you have, you get to the point in a, in rehearsal where you have to pin things down. More. Sure. Um, but it's more about giving the, uh, the actor the opportunity to, to possibly see the script in the way that you're seeing it. You're inviting them to sort of go, oh, this is a possibility that we could both follow. Yeah, I, I, it is that. I think it's, I think even more, it, it's, you know, I don't actually know until, sure. the rehe- until, you know, the rehearsal process pans out. Yeah. So, and I suppose that's what I mean by that. So I know some directors who come to, to rehearsal process, and this isn't a criticism, no. it's just a very different way of working, um, who come to the rehearsal process with a really clear vision about how it's going to be and I so I tend to have a very clear aesthetic yeah and a kind of um you know style but I don't actually know um what the actors are going to be doing how they're going to be speaking there's what, some nuance what, what the, there the that you're going to discover together to be. yes yeah. exactly and and we all discover that together and I I really like that and really enjoy that process how does that feel in terms of the amount of trust going back and forth in a company because mm. I that's somewhat similar to the way that I like to work but that does mean there's a certain amount of trust for the uh the cast to allow you to go down a route that might be a cul-de-sac yeah, so I think it it requires a reasonably generous rehearsal period yeah. and process, which isn't always the case. No, particularly if you're doing, you know, if you're doing amateur, so pro amateur or amateur sure. stuff where people aren't committing their whole, you know, they've got jobs as well. It's like two evenings a week and yeah. Weekend, so yeah. Um, uh, so that, yeah, so there has to be trust for me and also for each other that we've kind of got the time and the space to to do that. And some people. Some people struggle with it, I think. Some people struggle with kind of not knowing up front what they're going to be doing and, and Even in something and when. basic things like blocking or yeah, knowing absolutely. where yeah. to be. Yeah, so, um, you know, and and then when it comes down to sort of more practical stuff like, you know, props and staging and so on, which which for me is sort of fairly late in that process. Yeah. So, yes, there's a there's a degree of trust that that, that, that requires. You've directed uh, about, what, uh, off the top of my head, three or four times now of different productions. Yeah. Um, ish. Yeah. Well, three or four kind of, I suppose, full length or or chunky things, and then a yeah. number of shorter, yeah, shorter plays. You said yeah. you you some you feel that you direct perhaps in a different way. Uh, I want to sort of unstitch that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that maybe you even direct in a different way depending on what the text is, or what the production is? Oh, um, yes. Well, because I've the things I've directed have all been very different. Yeah. Um, and dem- so demanded different things. 
I suppose one of the things that, that varies is the size of the cast. Yeah. So, um, so the play, the first one I directed with you and Lisa, there was was a two hander. Yeah. I'm currently directing uh, a two hander that that I what I wrote. Yes. Um, and I directed a, for, for the Fringe last year a play called Blackbird, which is also pretty much a two hander. Yeah. There is, there is another character. So when you're working with, so it's all about the, that one relationship, uh, and I suppose that what that means is that you can kind of you can allow the the, the actors the space to really dive into that yeah really immerse themselves in that relationship um although it does mean that if uh one of your cast is ill for rehearsal that's that's the that's the half the company indeed yeah you 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 responded as if that's you've got experience on that sort of thing um, not so much it didn't happen no, no not not too much but it, uh, it yes it it's means a danger. it is a danger so you have to be very um you know a bit more rigorous i suppose about rehearsal dates yeah. and, and scheduling and so on but on on the other hand, you've only got two people, you know, because in a lot of texts, although there are, there are more people, people might not, you know, they're not all speaking at the same no. time, but you need them there for rehearsal. Yeah. So actually, um, so I, I uh, in contrast, I directed um, a play called The Arsonists at yes. New Bench Theatre a couple of years ago, and that had a cast of 12. Yeah. And a, a chorus, so yeah. kind of like a classical Greek chorus. And by, by the nature of that, um, you tend to have a range of sort of more more or less experienced actors yeah so um well that's interesting because i have a an opinion about choruses i know you're going to be doing antigone later in the year as well and i've had some experience in um greek theater uh directing because you had you did medea i did medea a couple of years back yeah um and we will chat later in a moment about um our our opinions of greek theater more or less but one thing i do think about the chorus in the play is I sometimes find that there are m- maybe a couple of directors who might p- fill up their chorus with their less confident, their less skilled actors. Of that's where you put the cannon fodder, um, because they're all talking together, so it will be fine. And I have always felt that's that's, that's fatal. Yeah. That actually, if if you had to choose between your gooder actor and your weaker actor, yeah. I'd actually go against what might be good instincts and go I'm going to put my better actor in the chorus I don't know if it's as that, that's quite a militant thing the way to put it but. so certainly in, in The Arsonist the chorus was so present yeah. and so critical for setting the tone uh, that, you know you're absolutely right and, and so I what I was saying earlier is that the, there was a, ver- a range of, ex- of experience sure but that's that's not the same as uh, capability yeah so so people who hadn't done very much acting would put themselves forward for a chorus role because it feels less exposing and yeah. sort of they thought you know, they were confident enough to do it but it actually didn't mean that that was you know that it was any easier well no it could, of course particularly role. particularly in the, in the what i always want to call it the fire races because i i'm familiar with a yeah, uh, yeah. earlier translation but yeah, yeah uh, that was as you say such a, a a backbone of the piece that it, you you couldn't really afford to throw anybody here who there who was less confident and and kind of tonally, I suppose, is that I don't know if that's the right word for it, yeah. but the 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 sound, the consistency of the sound that, yeah. that the chorus were making, you know, if if anyone's out, either in terms of timing or or more critically the, you know, the the tone of voice they're yeah. using, you can you can hear it yeah. in a chorus. You can sort of you you can get away with it in character because that's just that might be how that character speaks. Yeah, indeed. But it's much trickier with the chorus, so they really have to listen to each other because it's a collective whole. Yeah. 
there is, I mean, I guess in The Arsonists and in The Clean House and in Antigone and in even in Blackbird, there's a sense of, which sounds like a bit of too much of a truism because it's what most drama, a lot of drama is about, but there's something upset with the natural order of what that world should be. So there's, there are characters who are not able to cope with a, a recent change. Mm. Well, I suppose that's that's where the tension in yeah. in drama comes from so I think that's what we're drawn to it's change of, of one sort or another I mean in all of those cases the change in question is is pretty dramatic yeah so I mean, the arsonist is an allegory for um the rise of the the third reich yeah in Europe Antigone is around is around conflict and so I, well and is about political conflict and personal conflict so i suppose that's yeah. what i'm that's what i'm drawn to uh it's the kind of personal ramifications of political conflict that i find interesting a, a relatively not a small story but a, a very personal story within a big canvas yeah because actually i think you know and you know coming back to sort of thinking about poetry which we you know, it was just kind of one of one of my starting points yeah um, you know poetry is a, a small window onto the world but onto something that's really universal so I suppose that's that how long have you I was going to say I was going to use the odd phrase had access to poetry <laughs> I hated poetry when I started poetry at school mm. I used to I used to love it as a little kid and then I completely went off it as a teenager because we did Thomas Hardy and I at that point it just wasn't speaking to me at all really I couldn't get into Thomas no. Hardy's poetry then I had another um we kind of switched class and I had a different poetry teacher who we studied the Liverpool poets with so we did oh, yeah. um, Brian Patton and and Roger McGough and uh, and a bit of the of beat poetry okay and that suddenly was was like a different voice and something fresh that was interesting um but didn't really catch with me I wrote some excruciatingly bad poetry okay. as a teenager. I, I think I think that's that's the law. I think it's, it is. Yes. I do remember being but you, at, but the law is also you you have to get rid of it. Oh, okay, yeah. I do remember being <laughs> at a a new writing night, um, where Simon Brett, the uh, the local author uh, who created After Henry and has a series of murder mystery books, uh, he was the guest of honor, and about six people had a platform to read their poetry and i hope that apart from mentioning that simon brett was a, a guest of honor i hope that i'm being vague enough to be able to <laughs> announce that the 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 poetry was not good mm. it, it was it was what you might expect from some sort of public readings and it wasn't good and the the last person to speak was a a teenager and you could feel the mood of the room have been has been primed now to go well is it going to be about a, a dead dolphin or, or something? <laughs> and she announced that uh, this po poem was uh, written, inspired by, and about her best friend who had died about four months previously. Mm -hmm. And so the room clenched even further. Um, it was, even without the uh, the five other poets not being that good, it was genuinely brilliant yes. and moving and honest and yes. spare yeah. and not pretentious or flower it was just a, a love letter to her friend yeah. and yeah. there was no intention to impress us with her words at all yeah, yeah. 
Well, I so I think that's you know that when that poetry speaks to us, it's just it just connects. Yeah. Um, and it's not pretentious, and it. Yeah. So so we can write great poetry in, in our as adolescents. I didn't. I wrote some very bad poetry, and I sort of didn't really touch it again for. Uh, years, but I saw. I don't know if you remember. Well, they still have them. Poem, poems on the underground. Yes. So I remember back in the oh, nineties. I guess. 90s, okay. I read a snippet of a poem by Carolyn Forshay, who's an American poet um, who spent some time in South America. Yeah. Um, so political poetry, but but again, this personal. You know. So she there's this poem called "The Visitor," which is about a man in prison imagining. Um, the wind down the down the prison walls and, yeah. his, and his hands being the hands of his wife because he because he's lonely and yeah. uh, absolutely beautiful and the sound in it as I read it you know it's just on one of these posters and I was just kind of got hit by poetry again so read her poetry started writing a bit sort of seed germinating and then yeah. I and then I really came back to writing it. Um, at the end of my the breakdown of my second marriage, yeah. uh, just through I was angry, <laughs> so I wrote some very angry poetry, very <laughs> yeah. cathartic, angry poetry, and that was what got me performing it again or performing it for the first time because I shared one of those poems on a workshop, on yeah. a, a mastery workshop, loved that whole experience and started, yeah, kind of got encouraged, so started writing from there. But I wasn't wasn't a particularly good poet at no. that point. It just, you know just have to keep well, like you know you know with, with anything you just have to keep writing, keep practicing, keep keep editing. Did you know the poet the poems that you were writing at that point were intended for performance? And the, the bracket question to that as well <laughs> is: there a difference between a poem that will probably only ever be read that's printed words on a page and a poem that's meant to be heard? Oh. So that's a, oh, that, that's a whole, that's another whole interview. I suspect that question has been asked before. So no, when I first started writing, absolutely not. I wasn't yeah. intended to share them. They were, they were very personal. Um, I wrote under a pseudonym because I didn't want anyone to know it was me yeah. writing. Um, so I was really surprised when I shared this one poem and then, and then sort of was encouraged to do more. That was a surprise. I think there is, there is poetry that works really well um, when performed yeah. or when read um, that sometimes doesn't work as well uh, without that performance yeah. um, and there is some poetry that is quite complex that actually it doesn't mean it doesn't work out loud but a reader needs to come you know you kind of have to come back to it a few times to kind of re- to understand some of the sure. nuances in it I suppose but but I think good poetry can can bridge those and do and do both yeah and how about poetry that's the the physically where the words are placed on the state on the page the Mm. white space and Mm. um whether or not that i'm going to have eight words that bridge over the the gap in the pages how much of that is a gimmick uh sort of a lewis carrion sort of idea or can that be a really important element of the poem Um, so i I think sometimes visually that that matters. If you're t- sort of talking about something like concrete poetry or you know something that has a particular shape, yeah. that can matter. Um, usually, that is that the kind of spacing on the page is there to to tell the reader how to read it. Yeah, you know yeah. what it would sound like or what the kind of poet had in their ear when they 
wrote it because I mean that would be one of the things somebody asked me a while back about you know what advice would I give to people starting to write poetry yeah and I'd say and I said read a lot of poetry lots of different sorts sure. read it and when you write um say it out loud yeah because that's one thing that people often don't do so they don't kind of really get a sense of how it yeah. how it sounds and yeah. that is absolutely key even with sort of playwrights I, I'm thinking I guess of like Cal Churchill and Sarah Kane, yeah. they, if I'm remembering correctly, don't particularly go in for ellipses or pause or dash. They'll actually physically place the words further down on the scale on the page, yeah. telling you to wait a bit before you say the next bit of uh, dialogue. Yeah, so exactly, you can do exactly that. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's some poetry that is performance poetry, but I suppose is 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 like dramatic monologue kind yeah. of poetry, which is not just about hearing it out loud but it's enacted it's embodied you know so in reading a poem like that the reader becomes the character who's speaking yeah so, and that's that's in a different voice so that would be that's another kind of poetry that really needs to be performed you talked about some of your early poetry being um presented at a, a mastery class mm. um i'm not Sure, I, I've known you for for a while, and I know about the mastery classes, but I'm not sure that I could tell somebody else what a mastery class is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that question: okay. What is a mastery class? So the, the so the, the full title of the the workshop is the mastery of self expression. Yeah. Um, it comes from acting training, so it was developed by a group of people in New York at the Actors Institute. Yeah. So it kind of comes from that that school. So what, what era? Um, 60s well, or 70s or? Uh, no kind of later than the so after things like Est and sure. Landmark and so but 80s okay um, so people like Ted Danson and Sigourney oh, okay, that era, okay. have, yeah. have been involved um, created by a guy called Dan Fossey who was head of comedy at Paramount yeah and he was the creator of Cheers amongst other things okay so yes yeah. Ted Danson on Cheers um, and they started with a workshop to help actors to be um, more courageous, more authentic in their in their performances, yeah. to sort of draw more of their themselves out into what they did. So it started as an acting workshop. Yeah. But they gradually found that the people who were doing the workshop were were not only um, getting more bookings as actors, so being more successful in their auditions, but but were more confident, were more satisfied, their relationships were improving. So yeah. they kind of realised that this whole thing about being being ourselves without fear yeah. is 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 a useful thing for for all of us to do so it became a personal development workshop um and it's been running internationally since then so since, yeah. since the 80s so i did it as a participant yes about nine years ago now yeah. down in bristol didn't really know what i was doing why i was there sure. this quite often happens in life yeah um but just blown away with it so so i I read a poem to a group of people, which was amazing, an amazing experience because the feedback I got was, yeah. was great. Had that confidence. But I also realised that the work, the you know, the workshop and the way it worked and what it was doing for people was really powerful. Um, so I, I explored that more. So I did a follow-up workshop with Dan himself, who came yeah. over to the UK the following year. Um, so a workshop called Leadership and Creativity, which I kind of thought would just be a bit more of the same, yeah. a bit more intense. But it turned out to be a workshop in which everybody present would run the workshop. So, so we, you know, one of the devices is you're is you're effectively sitting. The leaders of the workshop sit in what what you call the director's chair at the back, yeah. helping whoever's up 
front on stage to rehearse and try things differently. So in the workshop, we all got a a turn yeah. in the equivalent of the director's chair and I think so this is where all of this stuff around you know coaching and directing yeah. and that being in that chair is is that's what felt like it was in my DNA sure. so I sat in that chair with somebody else up front noticed what I saw encouraged them to try something different and it had had an impact <laughs> on what they were doing and uh, so I like this and the phrase everyone present everyone who is present it's quite a telling phrase because it is it is about being present yes and it's about the uh, I'm, I'm guessing the, the the power of yes of not uh when if you're in a, a business environment or if you're directing or acting not finding the reasons why that thing can't be done but finding at, at, at worst a compromise yeah so there was no there was no sort of would you like to have a go at this you don't have to if you don't want to which is really interesting because I, I ran a workshop last week and one for, for coaches yeah we're using theatre skills in, in coaching we were doing a lot of mask work and somebody said how do you how do you get people to do this in you know because people in business are really resistant to yeah. things that are outlandish and I said well in my experience if you if you think they're going to be resistant and they're not going to join in uh, they will be yeah yeah <laughs> and they won't so it, in this workshop there was it was all presupposition. It was right. Okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And There's a slight of hand there, isn't there? There's a, yeah. n- not a removal of choice, but yeah, because I could have chosen not to play. Sure. I could have walked out. Could have. Yeah. But um, you know, nobody did. Um, so, as I say, I had no idea I was going to be one of the people leading the workshop. But they just, you know, Dan described the setup. Yeah. This is how it's going to work. You're all going to have a go at this. It's like, whoa, <laughs> really? And we should qualify and that even if you were feeling a bit sort of not necessarily vulnerable, but like a little bit whoa, it still felt like a safe, supportive environment. Well, I so one of the things I've learned doing doing that workshop is that uh, it's possible to feel really out of your depth, yeah, really moved, you know, really because quite often you know strong feelings come up in that in that yes. kind of work, and to lead the workshop. Yeah, you know, so all this this stuff about well, when when I know what I'm doing, of course, when I've done all my prepare, preparation, when when all of these things are true, I'll be able to give it a go and it could be great. So that's procrastination. Yeah, yeah. Rather than okay, we're all here, we're going to do it, and if you don't quite know what you're doing, that is fine because a participant doesn't quite know what they're doing. No, either. And, and and you can model improvising, telling the truth, being brave and courageous. That's you know that's all you need to do. Um, and there's an element that happens in, in everyday life anyway, because mm-hmm. it's it's very rare that we know what the end of our sentence is when we start our sentence, which can sometimes cost us. But um, yeah, yeah, we are we are all literally making it up Especially as we go when along. Being interviewed. Well, yeah, indeed, yeah, I, I'm fine. Or indeed, doing the or interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, it still but it still works. And so so at one point, Dan said, right, we you're all going to do as part of it. So we'd have this device, but also I want you to lead a session on these things. And he just gave us a topic. So I said the topic. I can't even remember the topic I yeah. had. But you just had to run um, a process, so a bit of a workshop for a group of twenty people on that topic. Yeah, and that felt like jumping into the terrifying. yeah yeah yeah. But you know, but it. But every and I suppose everyone's in the same boat as well. So that's one of the things that makes it. When you sort of said how safe did it feel? Yeah, everyone's in the same boat. That's really important. And I guess um, it tells you that feeling vulnerable or uncertain is not in of itself a weakness. It's not. It's not. It's not going to kill you. Absolutely. And so that's that classic thing about you know what courage isn't the absence of fear. It's you know. On, on that note. Um, you are you are directing this Brighton Fringe, uh, which. <laughs> 
Yeah, talking about fear. Yeah, yeah. because particularly so, because you're you're directing your own work. Yes. Uh, how how much have you, in terms of a narrative of a theatre, have you written before? I've written three or four short plays. Yeah. Um, for mostly for Cast Iron. Yeah. A couple of things that that so I got shortlisted in a short play festival. Yeah. A couple of years ago. So I remember, I remember I one of the first things. A lot. No, I remember one of the first things you'd uh, written for us, if not the, possibly the second thing you wrote for us, which you sent to us with a, a, a qualifying note of going, I'm not sure this is right for mm-hmm. cast iron. Because we, in one of the guidelines, we sort of ask, you know, not to have overly complicated sets or whatever, because it's a reasonably intimate space, and yeah. not to have overly complicated sound, um, sound or lighting effects. Yeah. And you'd written us a play where you. And I'm very glad that you did send it to us because I think some of our writers might have felt a bit too nervous and not sent it in at all. And you sent it in to us with this, not quite an apology, but an acknowledgement of going, this might not be the, the right one because there were about 17 scenes uh-huh. in in the, um, in the um, yeah, yeah, in the 10 minute play. And yeah. it, was, it jumped back uh, in different periods of time and stuff, mm. but it felt exactly right for what we were doing. Um, how did it see? How did it feel to um, watch that? Well, because you, Sarah, because you didn't have any connection with it in the production of it. No, so that so it is quite an interesting thing to let to let go. In fact, I was talking to um, a colleague the other day who's, who's sort of doing that for the first time, and I, yeah. you know, she's find, you know, says so she's finding it challenging. But I think the cast iron experience for me has been really great because I got you know we write some short plays and you just have to pass them over to yeah. a director and a cast and then come and see it perform. It's a different process to doing the whole thing yourself. Yeah. But actually, I think it's a really healthy one. Um, and I and I genuinely think that if... Then I don't... It's not... Um, I don't mean to assume this about no. my play. But sure. I ge- but I think that if if writing is, you know, reasonably strong, it'll stand up to... You know, it needs... Absolutely. It needs to make sense to a director to be able to pick it up and go, OK, I, I, I get what's going on. It shouldn't yeah. need the writer to say, oh, no, when I wrote that, what I meant was... Indeed. But I do think that's something that you learn as a writer. That that like when we speak as well, we assume that somebody that everyone else is psychic and knows the whole thought process that's behind yeah. what we've said or what we've written, and we can't assume that. So no. I think I suppose I've got better at writing in a way that that gives that guidance to a director. Yeah, because there are certain things that you might be happy to. I've certainly had things written things that I've had directed. And they have been interpreted in an entire different way from what I have intended. Mm. And on some lovely occasions, that director or that cast has told me what the play was about, even though I was the one who wrote it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you're right. If if you if that character, for whatever reason, really has to be wearing an orange shirt, and for some reason it's that important that they're wearing an orange shirt, then you're going to write that in the script. Right, so there's yeah. there's no there's yeah. no wiggle room for the director or the, yeah. or the company. Yeah, but you you find out new things about it. So I'm doing the same with with one at the moment that's on at the New Venture Theatre in Ju- July. Yeah, the short play festival. So I've written a play that um, that the lovely Amy Spencer is directing. Yes, what's the name of your um, play? It's called Moving Slowly. What's that about? It's about the shipping forecast. Oh, beautiful! There we go. And so, will, will it have somebody <laughs> talking about um, 
certain things going across the uh, dogger and uh, good it and will have, uh, i can't um, quote enough from the shipping forecast i know i just love it so that, that that's poetry again isn't it indeed so I yeah i just love the shipping forecast. so it's a it's a an announcer it's the, the reader reading the shipping forecast yeah that's the kind of that's the premise is it not a danger, not as a, as a criticism of your writing, but because of the way that a lot of us approach the stripping forecast? It, it kind of has to be the last play of the night, doesn't it? Otherwise, everybody's going to fall asleep in this beautiful, sufferific response, this Pavlovian response. I don't know. I have to find out who... The, yes. Well, I hope the sailors who are listening to the shipping forecast don't fall asleep. That's true. I think it, it must depend on the connotation you have for it. There is a definite, I think, <laughs> maybe I overly romanticise the shipping forecast. I think many of us do. But it is on late at night. And it is on late at night. It's the last thing, isn't it, before bedtime. And, and you're, mm, I do imagine mm. that the, uh, there's a, a lonely boat herder. No, that's two different, <laughs> that's two different things. Um, <laughs> lost in the, in the ocean. You're little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it's that one. No, I, think, I, I don't think it's that. Um <laughs> But that is a, a um, an evening, well, a week of um, short plays yeah. from the New Venture Theatre, and that comes up at the end of July. By which time uh, you will have directed So You Say, which is yes. directed by you and written by you. It's a two-hander. It is. How much can you tell us about what that play is about? I can kind of tell you the premise, which is sure. that it's about a couple who meet, or two exes who meet up again many years after the last time they've seen each other, after they've broken up. Yeah. And they talk about how it was back then and they talk to us about what it was like to meet up again. And we we realise that they have different points of view about what happened both back then and, and even when they met up about you know, what was it that made them want to meet up again. And yeah. So a very common experience. I spoke yeah. to, to lots of people about their experience of meeting up with an ex after many years when I was um, p- pulling it together. It was prompted by an experience I had a um, couple of years ago. Yeah. Very strange experience of meeting up out of, you know, somebody contacted me out of the blue saying, would I, would I like to go for dinner? Yeah. Who I hadn't seen for a very long time. And uh, it was very strange, but that's a, that's definitely a different conversation for us to have. So uh, definitely but, but an, it, an idea of you, you can't go home again, that you, you can't time travel down your own history and well i suppose this idea that we're you know that we're changed so both parties are changed by the passage of time yeah but it's but more than that that the passage of time changes so it's like this time travel thing the passage of time itself changes what they remember yeah about what happened back then how they see it what meaning they make of of things that happened so they've, you know, they may, they may have, well, they will have experienced the same things together, but from a literally different perspective. But they, but they have a different perspective, and the longer that time goes on, the more divergent their perspectives become. The narrative they, version of, um, oh yes, I remember it well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you know, on the one level, that's just, it's kind of quite funny and playful because yeah. we, it's just no, it was blue, it was red, or whatever. But yeah. actually, uh, you know, it can be much. A much kind of darker sense. Well, of I was going to say because the title itself is a reasonably dark title. It, it, it's it can we can just map in it as a title, so you say. Yeah. But once you read it back to yourself, there's a bit of almost an accusing tone there. Good. <laughs> I'm <laughs> how, glad that comes over. How did yeah. how did it long did it take you to find the title? Ah, oh, it had different titles. Yeah. It was whatever you say for a while, and that was a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember it was a couple of other things but I think while we, when we were when we started to 
when we remember somebody else in this case an ex yeah. we we want to remember them in a particular way and we want them to be a, p- a particular way so either positively or negatively either positively or negatively yeah. but we kind of want them to be how how we remember them or what we think they were it's to us our version then. of them exactly yeah. so it's our version of them and um you know that that can be quite sweet yeah but it can also be quite manipulative quite controlling so so i definitely wanted to get a sense of that you know that whole thing about what somebody else says we are sure there's definitely a um, the, an old saying which is a, a bit fortune cookie but the whole thing there's a three sides to every argument your side my side and what actually happened what actually happened yeah. yeah I mean one of the things I've played with is the kind of almost the crossover between um, spoken word performance and yeah. um, and dialogue text so there's a lot of repetition in the play but the repetition is always slightly different. You know, How so do your actors find that? Oh, <laughs> they hate me at the moment yeah, yeah, yeah. because they've got to learn. You know, so they don't know if they're on page 19 or page 11 because there's a line that's somewhat similar to the other line. Yes. Yeah. So, so mostly we're doing it with uh, the, the text is the same or almost the same, but the, uh, the delivery is very different. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, a classic example would be one of the phrases that came up quite obviously, you haven't changed a bit. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. indeed. So, so, be, so it, yeah. as part of So You Say, I want you to be exactly how you were then. You ha- you haven't changed a bit. You're just like I remember you. Yeah. You haven't changed a bit. You're just like I remember you. Yeah. So, we, you know, we sure, can yeah. just have all of that, that kind of different um, different resonance. And then sometimes they are, they're talking to the audience individually. Yeah. So we've got some monologues and then sometimes the monologues cut out. I mean, this is one of the things I... The, the, the beauty of... Uh, radio is that you can't see what my hands are doing no no but the but the cutting across of the text so that although sam is mining uh, waving is it waving or a bird no um a, a film a bit, no <laughs> yes so the text there are two monologues talking sure. to the audience they 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 feel separate they're talking differently but when you cut them together yeah they relate to each other i remember a piece i, I remember because i'd written a piece for cast i am um that I didn't submit and then at the same time... No, I, yeah, that's it. I didn't submit it. And then about a week later, I think you'd submitted a play for me, which was about... You must have been playing with that idea quite early on because it was about two monologues being delivered at the same time, if I remember incorrectly. Oh, gosh. And And there was some connection that I thought, oh, that's Dan, that's my idea, but better. Um, and then I think that... And then I think it, it won an award for you anyway. Or it... Oh, no. So that was... Um, oh, what was it? I can't remember what it was called now. But it was two people... It, it was that good. People yeah. to, yes. yes. Went to See, how, how, how fantastic must be for you, to, to, for you, Sam, to have delivered, to have created so much good work, you can't remember half of it. I can't remember. No, that's, it's nothing to do with, with the volume. Um, it's more to do with my, um, my terrible memory. So... Two characters on on the telephone, wasn't it? Yeah. That's so there uh, there are two people talking. Um, you, when you think they're talking to each other. That's right. Yeah. And but then, they're actually. Well, they're, so they're having they're having these two conversations that seem to interact. So you're not quite sure whether they're talking to each other or not. But they're both talking about going off for a dirty weekend, in effect. And um, so you kind of think that they are talking to each other. But it all starts to sound a little bit odd, and it turns out that 
there's something else happening. So that, that, I don't want to tell you the answer. No, no, no. <laughs> but that, that's a, that's a but, play yes. that, that dealt that is playful with the idea of being in a play that that, it, that there's the audience are part of that the audience are consciously part of that experience yes yes so I think that's I think that is true of my writing in general that that it plays up what you can only do in theatre sure that, that kind of that those devices that that we all know it's not quite real and yeah so it's called split scene because it was a split scene yeah um, and it was a scene about splitting I'm getting it, 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 it's got levels yeah it's got levels um it's like, it's like poetry title that it is, it is. Uh, so you say um was that a complete text when your cast got to it <laughs> no okay you, you you're saying that with apology but I'm not I'm not I'm not necessarily because does that not mean that for at least this version of it because it may well be uh, um produced again yeah. beyond the fringe yeah um does that not at least mean that there's an element of this version that has been created for these two actors. Yeah, yeah. And it's inspired by their personalities. Well, no, absolutely. So, I, so, so I'm, I'm apologising because I was later with the, li- with the last version, <laughs> the final version, than I promised I would be. And, and as we said earlier, it's quite a complicated text to learn. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's 45-odd minutes long, um, two characters on the whole time yeah. talking to us so there's, a lot, so there's a lot of words in it and some of them are sort of almost the same so it is a difficult text to learn that's why I'm apologising so yeah. Charlie and Russell I'm sorry um, but the way we <laughs> the way we did it was I it, so I hadn't written it when we when I auditioned them no I had an outline I'd written a few scenes in order to do the audition process and then we workshop so once I'd cast uh my two actors, so uh, Charlie Summers and Russell Shaw, who are both fabulous. Once I'd cast them, we had two or three workshops where we played with the ideas. Yeah. So we did we did improvisation. We were we were playing around the shape of an argument, how arguments go, how yeah. reconciliations go, using a number of kind of um, yeah rehearsal tools to do that. And I had them both do some reflections on stuff exes so i said the trouble with exes is so so i gathered some of yeah. their you know some kind of thoughts and then didn't use them well no <laughs> no that, that, so uh, so it's not you know so it, it isn't it's not so, confessional in that sense. no exactly so it's not my confessional and it's not either of their confessional either so that was really important to be able to kind of let go of the content yeah but the the kind of ideas or the way people say what they say and the response and the 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 chemical the, element to it yeah and the and, and the how a meeting change you know a meeting up again would change depending on where both parties were coming from yeah. so has, has one of them got an agenda um, did it end happily or not happily or but but it's certainly been written with their um, with their characteristics in mind. So even though it's not a confessional, there's a possibility that it, that it feels quite raw and naked. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope it feels, I hope for the audience, it feels like we could be talking about any any one of us. Yeah. Because my guess is, you know, most of us have got baggage. I, I, I'm, <laughs> le- I'm led to believe that's the case. Yeah, I can't believe that many of us don't, you know don't have any experience of well i think that's the thing if 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 uh, uh, perversely if we meet somebody who has no baggage we're not going to trust them are we <laughs> we're going to what what are you hiding 
Um, um, so you say is not the only thing you've got going on at the fringe. No. So 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 you say is on at the beginning of the fringe. Yeah. So the fifth to the seventh and the eleventh to the fourteenth of May. Yeah. That's at Sweet. That is at Sweet Venues. Yeah. And then the following day, oh, wow. um, the 15th to the 17th, so just for three nights, punters, yeah. um, is uh, Underworlds, which is my one-woman show. So that's a reprise from last year. I did it for Hove Grown last year. Yeah. Um, How did it go for you last year? It was good. I loved I loved doing it. had a very lovely review from Broadway Baby. Lovely. Um, and some really good audience feedback. So I'm looking forward to doing it again and, and to... Um, Reprise, you know, rejigging it a little bit, kind of learning what what really worked. A couple of things that I'm going to shift. And what is it? I mean, you've said so, it's a one woman show, but what? Yeah, so it's a platform essentially for poetry. Yeah, but, but not. It's a combination of storytelling of what I'd call dramatic monologue and poetry. Yeah. So it's a show about dead women. Yeah. And a spider. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, uh, the goddess of spiders or, or so the so the show is a, a narrated by arachne um who in greek mythology was a was a young weaver a woman who challenged the goddess athene to um to a competition yes because she was very proud and uh so the kind of you know legend goes that uh athene was upset by how good she was sure and so turned her into a spider so that she could weave for the rest of her forever couldn't couldn't cope with the competition so she couldn't but but in some versions of the story it's more about the content of of arachne's tapestries so that she showed she wove images of the gods um abusing women raping women so so greek mythology uh, is full of stories of gods turning themselves into mythical creatures and coming down and um, as is very nicely put in most of the stories, seducing mm. young women, i.e. raping. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so Arachne told the truth. So in this version of the story, she's punished for telling the truth. Um, and so she carries on telling the truth about characters through through history. Yeah. So we meet a number of dead women from history. Yeah. Um, who kind of who are putting the record straight telling the story from their points of view. And telling and again telling the truth. Telling the truth. Um yeah, telling us what it was really like. So so Cleopatra for example, yeah. um who tells us that she didn't kill herself. So she tells us what really happened with that asp. Yes. For example. Yeah. So she didn't kill herself. Um Kathy from Wuthering Heights <laughs> gets yeah. a uh, gets a say about um be, being dug up. Yeah, you know, wanting to so how what's it what's it what's it like to be underground and yeah. dead? Lot's wife makes a brief appearance. There's a couple of more more modern women in there, so they're yeah. not all sort of ancient, but again, women sort of giving, telling the truth, telling their perspective. So it's a very, I suppose, you know, loosely call it a feminist piece. There's something quite acute about these women having their voices after their life has ended. Because uh, that's one connecting theme is that they're all dead. They are all dead. Yes. So it is about being. Well, are they all dead? Hmm. Hmm. One of them might not be. Oh, is that a spoiler or just no, that you have done the research? No, no, no. but it, well, because the the dead thing is, it's about emerging. There's sure. about a kind of some kind of afterlife, and so it's called Underworlds. So yeah. It's about. Um, I suppose the kind of dark female mystery of death and the earth and yeah. 
kind of how how we might be reborn from that so i suppose it's more about that that they find their voices again being reborn so for most of them it's after it's being reborn after death for one it's about about reclaiming her freedom after after abuse i noticed it may just be coincidence but the two examples you use are the two women speaking about the quality of their death Kathy talking about being underground, yeah. uh, Cleopatra talking about that's yeah. not the way that she died. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and of course, Lot's wife who, so Lot's wife who gets turned to a pillar of salt. Yeah. So that's her. That's her end. And then it's um, closed by Eurydice, um, who, you know, so in classic stories, Orpheus goes to the underworld to rescue her because she's died and tries to bring her back, and he fails because he looks round to see her again. So that's that's told as a failure. Yeah. So in Eurydice's version. She's actually kind of quite comfortable being being dead and well, not so much comfortable, but she needs him to carry on living. So she sets him free. She tells him to go back and live and leave her be. So and the, the irony is that in uh, the story of Lot's wife, she turns around and gets turned to a pillar of salt. And in Eurydice and Orpheus, Orpheus turns around. Yeah. And she, <laughs> so whoever it is turns around, it's always the woman who, yes. who gets to stay dead. There's definitely, yeah, there's, um, that's depressingly not surprising at all, is it? Um, Yeah, I feel like we could spend an entire hour speaking about Underworlds alone. Um, We're not going to. No. uh, But. Come uh, see it though. Yeah, absolutely. So remind us on the dates of of Underworlds. Underworlds is the 15th to the 17th may and so it's so, uh, three nights um three nights uh at the, again at sweet venues at the sweet yes. jukebox yeah. we haven't even begun to speak about the fact that that's not in in any way still the only thing you'll be doing this year you, um in june you're going to be doing auditions for uh, the play itself won't happen until october but uh yeah. you're you're holding auditions for antigone, antigone. Um, so my my mum said when i sort of tell my mum i'm busy and tired and stuff she says <laughs> she says well sandra you will do these things. Yeah, I, I, I get that a lot. It's your choice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. So. so Antigone. Antigone. Um, you, there was a line in your audition notice I was, I was reading which chimed in very well with me about recognising that the genre can be a bit, you know, th- these aren't your words, these are mine, but you're a bit wailing and gnashing of teeth. And certainly when I was doing Medea, that was something that I was vehemently opposed to. Um, my, throughout doing Medea, my, the voice that was in my head was no lesser an authority than Mel and Sue. Um, <laughs> because they... <laughs> what, were they, what did they tell you? Well, here, here's the thing. They, they were on an old episode of uh, Room 101. And one of the things they wanted oh, to God. put into uh, into Room 101 was student theatre. Okay. And they spoke about the experience of um, uh, going up to Edinburgh and what you'd have as a drama group um, consisting of, like, you know, 19 young women in leotards crawl, <laughs> crawling around the stage, slapping the stage, hissing at the audience as they came in, going, Jocasta, baby killer, Jocasta, baby killer. <laughs> And so I was determined Fantastic. throughout... Fantastic, we're, we're going to use that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was determined that ain't going to happen with yeah. with Medea. And certainly, yeah, and we spoke a bit about the chorus earlier on. Mm. There are certain aspects of Greek theatre that we've kind of trained ourselves, the audience, to expect. And so maybe it's a sheer bloody-mindedness, but I always felt, OK, we're absolutely not going to do that. Yeah. Is it bloody-mindedness? Or is it... To make it accessible to the audience. Yeah, I think there's something about, um, um, you know, an aesthetic or a kind of style that, you know, making it modern, 
And also, right. I guess, because in, in Greek theatre, nine times out of ten, the events and some of the dialogue is going to be, for want of a better word, hysterical. Yes. And so the work is already there. And yeah, to... I speak that you don't have to over... You don't have to kind of overplay it, I suppose. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Um, I don't know why, but we, we were just talking about that Jocasta thing. I suddenly had in my image um, Antigone the pantomime. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is, folks, is not what we're doing. Um, so I'm using, I, I can't say which version at the moment because we're still negotiating the rights, but yeah. I'm using one of the more modern translations sure. or adaptations of, yeah. of um, Antigone. Yeah. Of which there are many. There so are, yeah. um, it isn't one of these two, but um, Seamus Heaney's The Burial at Thebes, which is essentially the same story, is yeah. be- beautifully written, you know, as you would expect from a from the voice of a poet yeah. such as he. Uh, we've got also um, um, Sam Tritton at the Cast Iron Theatre in June, uh, in on June the 23rd, I believe, mm. uh, with uh, an evening of poetry. Let's talk about that. Yes, so, um, so Cast Iron's been doing small plays short plays nice, and yeah. stories spoken word yeah story um, nights story nights so i guess this is sort of the next the next development yeah, we're, is, we're, we're constantly evolving um it is so evolve yeah. into something small and beautifully formed with yeah. some with some bits of poetry yeah. yes so uh we'll be doing a call out for for local poets to yeah. submit and i will be shortlisting if we get loads sure. choosing curating putting together an, an evening of Poetry, I hope, of lots of different kinds. So yeah. I hope we have some, you know, what you'd kind of call more traditional spoken word performance poetry yeah. and some um, lyrical poetry um, and everything in between. Um, and we will probably put them together, we were just talking about this earlier, into yeah. um, an anthology for the evening as well. So I've just launched um, a Sussex-based poetry mag called, yes. called Smooze, which is one of the most beautiful words in the english language but it's not spelled how we might think it spells possibly it's, it's not got double o in it no it's not got no. double o so it's how is it spelled s-m-e-u-s-e okay so one of your listeners will probably tell me i've been pronouncing it wrong or so, okay. yeah yeah yeah. that's fine i don't but, know how else you would say it there but that that's fine because because you, as, a, as a poet you you have chosen to interpret that word I can say it how i want yeah yeah and it's poetry because i say so yeah and i'm a poet because i say i am so, so. is this a, it's a, a quarterly or yeah so um it's going to be a, a quarterly journal yeah the first one was out in um, a couple of weeks ago our spring sure. edition and that included the results of the hove grown poetry competition oh yeah of course which was great so we've done our first poetry competition for hove grown uh and publish those poems in here too. And we could find, um, to purchase that, we could find that online and details of how to submit in the future? Or? Yes. So um, if you go, if you Google smooth poetry, you should find it. But I, there's a, a submittable account. Yeah. So I don't, if people are familiar with submittable, which is a, a kind of online I submissions yeah. engine. Yeah. Um, if you... If you go on Submittable and look for Smooze, you'll find it there. There's also a Smooze Facebook page. Yeah. And if you look for Hove Grown as well, you'll find the link to oh, the fantastic. competition there. So people will be able to find that. Yeah. So so Smooze is regularly publishing new together, poet, pub- yeah. publishing yeah. these little pamphlets, which are which are rather lovely. It's rather more than the pamphlet. It, 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 well, it it's is. a book. It's a chapbook, yeah, yeah, yeah. really, isn't it? Oh, oh chapbook. We very rarely hear that word anymore. Yeah, so we'll do something like this for... People can't see no, no. how lovely it is, but we'll do something like we'll, this. We'll put some photos for, of it on, for, for the um, podcast, podcast webpage. Yes, for Cast Iron as well. Yeah. 
uh, you're one of many ideas and presumably sometimes those ideas don't reach fruition before somebody else gets them. So when you were, uh, not necessarily even younger, it might have happened last week, uh, have you invented something that somebody got to or you're nodding already? I don't even have to finish a sentence. What, what, what? So, yeah, go on. Um, so th- three thoughts came up to <laughs> okay. me when you asked me, when you said you were going to ask me this question. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the first was that when I was a kid at school, I drew a picture of a thing called a Stingosaurus. Yeah. Which is a sort of a strange um, mechanical beast with bits on that, um, with weapons and things. Sure. I reckon it's a lot like those um, those big walker oh, like animals the, the, the in Star Wars, like the yeah, atats, oh, yeah. like big camel things. Yes. So, Yes, a mechanical beast. I don't know how they got my drawings. No. Well, George um, Lucas um, was inspired by a huge variety of things. Um, Seven Samurai, um, Greek myth. And the Stingosaurus. And, um, you know, schoolgirls from Sussex, I guess. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, I'm, I'm sure at that point. Oh, okay. So, self-cleaning cat's eyes. Oh, hello, yes. So they used to not move. They used to be fixed. Sure. And um, my brother and I were convinced that when we drove down the road, there were a band of pixies who would go on and turn them on yeah. as the car arose. And then um, behind you would go and switch them all yeah, off yeah. and clean them while they were at it. Yes. So this was before they invented the ones that, that go down into the road and clean themselves. I'm afraid it? to ask what the average cat's eye needs cleaning from. Is it like roadkill and or just dirt. dirt? Like stuff off the glass. Not not badgers yeah. and no, no. And bits of rabbit. No, okay. but they but they now drop down. They have kind of pads and they drop down into the road. So the if car goes over them, it pushes yeah. them down and they and it wipes the glass. What a glorious world we live in. I know. Um, and then I'm also convinced that yeah. I invented the scene in 2001 where the baby's in the sun. I'm sorry, what? The baby thing in the you know the feet. Oh, the Teletubbies. No, uh, no. In 2001. Oh, that one. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, I, got I was convinced for very many years that I did that. I now suspect that I, because um, I thought I dreamt it. Yeah. And then I saw it in the film years later. I suspect that I might have caught a glimpse of it as a child. Oh, I see. Yeah. And thought that, that I'd invented it. I so. definitely have a very early memory of seeing the trailer on TV for Alien. And the trailer is all about the two dots on the um, digital map coming closer and closer and closer. Oh. And I must have seen that on TV, I assume in 1979. Um, but yeah, that sort of buried itself in my DNA of... Because I didn't see the film of a child mm. and then seeing it later. And I go, oh, hang on, I remember that mm. from a film that I'd never seen before. Mm. Um, so you've invented three things that you, you, you don't get the credit for. At least. Two sci-fi related so I gen- genuinely wanted to be an astronaut when I was when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. When I did my Stingosaurus, it was you know, yeah. part of that thing. Um, but I'm not very good with, with um, heights or speed. I think once you get up to a certain height, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, all that whole gravity thing. Sure, yeah, yeah. Gravity know, is helpful, yeah. Um, that spinning and dizziness and things, I kind of realised that wasn't the way. So I ended up doing um, uh, biomedical engineering so that I could okay. help out on the space medicine programme. See, that alone deserves an entire hour. I really wanted that sentence to be, I couldn't be an astronaut, so I became a poet instead. Uh, <laughs> a poet of the spheres, I was. No. So, yeah, I, I, I want to sort of pursue that line of questioning straight away. Um, <laughs> but um, I want to also um, ask, in terms of, well, it might be associated with what you're reading. Uh, is there anything that you're reading at the moment or anything that you're watching at the moment or the last album you listened to or the last film you watched that you think oh hang on we need 
you, you need to recommend us to our listener listeners listener Wait, just one thing yeah well no no go ahead no, go, go so, ahead oh, um so the thing when you ask me the first question about films that's really tricky so yeah. the one thing i'd say is is subscribe to mubi m-u-b-i okay. because there are just always brilliant films or sometimes not so brilliant films but films that you wouldn't have watched otherwise sure that I love so it's just um, a new film every day so it's like um, it's like an older sibling pushing a film oh you'll love this yes yeah yeah that, that kind of, so it's brilliant so lots of art house stuff and yeah. if a new film comes out by a particular director they kind of tend to do a back, back sure. catalogue of them so yeah. I really love that music stuff I, I had this interesting experience <laughs> recently where I I listened again to Genesis Seconds Out okay which I've not listened to, to for years, but it reminds because we were one of the things we talk about in So You Say is bands what I've seen. So there's yeah. a whole kind of thing, whole game around who did we see when we went to see them. And yeah, got me thinking about the bands I'd seen. So and I and I saw Genesis play in the early eighties. Yeah, but, so Phil Collins as frontman, but still um, Peter Gabriel's lyrics, okay. actually songs, yeah. and it it made me realise how poetic the lyrics are and how much of a storyteller yeah peter gabriel was and and how much all of that kind of prog rock stuff which was also i suppose that goes with the sci-fi sci-fi and prog mm. rock. oh yeah um how prog rock was all you know the concept album yes that whole thing about telling a story so i've just recently got really back into to listening to that but more um recent artists i suppose of that do the same sort of thing for me would be Shearwater. yeah um, and the December Decemberists. Okay, yeah. So both of whom's lyrics are very poetic. They're kind of sung in a particular way, and they're all they're kind of complex stories and layered, musically layered. And I love that. You know, and again, it's that how music can tell stories too. And I guess so. there is a connective there, as you've already said, with so you say in terms of listening to an album at one stage of your life, yeah. and then having eight years distance on it it's going to mean a different it's almost going to the lyrics have unchanged but it will tell you a different story yeah yeah well yeah 30 years in my case because you know Uh, yeah yeah, indeed and more and more Um, so yeah yeah it changes I, the other thing I wanted to ask you, um, while you're sort of being creative in Brighton and writing in Brighton, uh, you might well find yourself in a coffee shop or a bar um, that you might want to recommend to us as equally as you're recommending to us um, mm. albums. Is there anywhere that we'd find you hanging out in Brighton? So, yes, but not to write. Okay. So uh, I like Nordic Cafe. Oh, yes. In York Place because they do a fantastic licorice-flavoured latte. Oh wow! Is, is, is that the only flavoured latte they do? No, is that they used do your, lots. Yeah. Of, they do lots, but that's a sort of a very so it's a very Scandinavian thing to sure. have licorice in your yeah. coffee. But um, I really like it. Yeah. But I don't. I I find it really difficult to write in a cafe. Do you have to have a like a silent environment? Do you have to be it in have your to be study? Silent, but it has to be um, anonymous. Yeah. I suppose, and not distressed. So if I'm in a cafe, I mean, I go. I meet people in cafes sure. and I kind of go to socialising cafes and I, I like that. I like to get away from the writing and go yeah. and do that. So that's, I guess, what I'm asking is, is the cafe is actually a, a sanctuary away from the writing rather than somewhere where you'd go to yeah. write and be creative. Yeah, yeah. go for, for a break. Not that I particularly need a break from writing. No, no. Do you get anxious if you're not writing for longer than a period of a couple of days or whatever? No, no. I mean, I go, I go long periods of time and I don't write yeah. at all. Um, what I I tend to find that to 
it works for me to kind of crack the back of some writing by by being completely away yeah. so i would you know because if i'm at home i've got too many things that i'd be distracted by sure. or tempted by as well so i so most of the things that i've written i've kind of started to write when i was somewhere else entirely yeah. or the idea has come up so yeah. the idea for moving slowly um the, the the one about the shipping forecast yeah. ironically well not ironically it was because of, it was because of where i was i was in a lighthouse yeah. um, in devon spent a week on a kind of writing retreat down there that does um, sound like a writing retreat yes. a lighthouse in a devon light, it was like yeah. uh, right on the you know as as lighthouses tend to be like sort of on the edge of the land did you find yourself in your in your, in your wax coat and your boots or or proudly standing one knee aloft on a on a rocky outcrop I didn't do that. Oh no. no! I'm not. I'm not judging. I'm just. You know, that, that, that's the. That's the image I had. No, it was. No. Like, oh, it was a bit cosier than that. Yeah. yeah okay. A bit cosier than that. But but one of the things about being on on a piece of land sticking out is you've got more than 180 degrees of, of course of horizon. Yeah. It was an amazing setting. So. Yeah. So, but I tend to do. I tend to to try and get completely away to start an idea of something. And then once it's started to come, I can edit. I can edit on the train. I yeah, can indeed. edit, You know. How do you edit? Do you do you have to have it printed off for for you, for you I, or can you edit all on screen? Uh, I do it all on screen. Yeah. I mean, I do. I like to have a printed copy to kind of to read, and sure. I do. I often scribble on a printed yeah. copy, but then I then I go back and because because quite often, I mean, for example, with so you say, which I've said is, you know, there's a lot of repetition. Yeah. There's there's a lot of moving stuff around yeah and sim- the same with poetry that it's not that i tend to write what's 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 this word yeah uh what's there um <laughs> what, what comes out yeah no i tend to kind of put everything down sure uh, and, then ship, and then ship away and later. then ship away yeah. or move it th- or move things around rather than have a framework that i that i fill in okay so yeah. i don't i don't do them i don't write the way you're meant to I don't think any of us do. I mean, there are. I mean, there are plenty of gorgeous books that um, uh, you know. There's John Truby. There's Chuck Wendig. There's so many people who say this is a good. This is what works for me. This is yeah. what will probably work for you. Yeah. But I think all my favourite books come with the proviso of you're entitled to ignore everything that I'm telling good. you. Good. So if we're talking about favourite books, there's yeah. um, Anne Lamott's book um, Bird by Bird. Bird by Bird. Yeah. That's oh. how you should write Bird by Bird. So is that, is, that, is that literally a how you should write book? It is a how oh. you. It's it's a sort of it's a bit of how you should write, a bit of how you should live, a bit of just memoir. Yeah. But it's just a really beautiful, beautifully written book by a writer that told me a lot about how she wrote. And, yeah. Um, but it's and it's a lovely read anyway. You know, if you're not a writer, it's just really nice. Cool. Excellent. Um, yeah. So I think we've spoken about favourite places and books and films and programmes, etc. So it just remains for us to sort of remind ourselves uh, what you've got coming up. So that I think the first in place is So You Say. That's right. So You Say, uh, 5th to the 7th of May and then the 11th to the 14th of May at uh, Sweet Jukebox. Yeah, and then? And then Underworlds follows on from the 15th to the 17th of May. Okay. And that's again at the jukebox. That's also at the jukebox. So we're going to find certainly tickets are available on the Fringe website mm-hmm. now, and I think they'll be available on the jukebox website, yep. the Sweet Venues uh, website, very soon. Yep. And so that's May, and mm-hmm. then for June you've got. Uh, so June I've got auditions. Yes. For Antigone. Yeah. 
Um, so we're starting rehearsals early, then we're having a summer break for um, line learning yeah. and sunshine, yeah. and then coming back for a really intensive rehearsal period. So in that's six, September. seven weeks, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And that's um, the performances are in late October? Yes. Yeah. Um, Mid-October, so okay. 13th of October, okay. I think that goes up. Um, and then we've got poetry. So we've yeah. got cast time poetry evening on the 23rd of June. That's right, yeah. It's a, it's a busy year. <laughs> It is. Moderately. Uh, well, thank you, Sam Shididen. It's uh, been uh, fantastic to speak to you. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. Or, uh, always uh, fantastic to speak about um, the work. That makes me sound much more pretentious than I want to sound. But it's, it <laughs> is about it, the work. It is sincere. It is sincere. So it's, uh, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. Excellent. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, presented by me, Andrew Allen, edited by Michelle Donkey. Music is Chapstick by Everett Arland. Find us on Twitter at cast underscore iron acts, on Facebook with ironclad cast iron, or one word, and our website is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.